But so what the market here in this case, I would feel sometimes betrays the profession is not finding that balance between data and art, science and art. And so the marketeers that are relevant are the ones who are able to go to the boardroom and also have a good, solid understanding of the business. You know how we make money here. You know how to grow revenue. You know how to reduce, increase gross margin. You know how to do EBITDA growth. You know how to do cost reductions. But you also know how to increase users, usage. You also know that in the IFRS guidelines and the balance sheet, the intangible asset has value. And your job is to grow the intangible asset. And you also know that when businesses are sold, over 50% plus of the value that is being sold is intangible. Mm. And that's the role of a marketeer. It's not an accountant that created that intangible value. My guest today is Mzamo Masito, the Chief Marketing Officer for Google Africa. His role entails bringing to life Google's mission to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible, helpful, and useful for every African so that Google's users and partners can grow in Africa. Mzamo joined Google from Vodacom Vodafone, where he held several senior executive positions based in London and in Africa. He has an MBA with Gibbs as well as a postgraduate diploma from UCT. He is also a PhD candidate with UCT, researching the effects of English TV advertising on consumers whom English is second, third, or even fourth language in South Africa. Mzamo currently serves on the Gibbs Advisory Board, as well as Red and Yellow Creative School of Business. He previously held senior executive marketing positions at Nike as a CMO for Nike Africa, as well as World Cup 2010 lead, and also spent time at Unilever as a VP for their foods business. Mzamo founded and runs an NGO called African Men Care, which funds underprivileged children to further their studies. Mzamo strongly believes that to be young, gifted, free, without opportunity is a devil's gift, and to deny that opportunity is immoral and criminal. He's passionate about learning and deeply exploring how to harness the power of education, agriculture, e-learning, technology, and telcos as tools for social change at a profit and how these tools can help bring about an African renaissance, the Africa we want and African regeneration. Welcome Zamo, Masito, thank you for joining. Uh, Thank you for making the time. How are you, how's the family? You know, I remember spending two years deep rural KZN uh, in a village called Injang and next to Sunduzi River. And I spent time with traditional healers a lot. And every time we woke up, there's only one thing you were supposed to say, mm-hmm. so I am grateful for peaceful sleep and I am grateful for waking up. All stuff is a bonus. Mm-hmm. Because those two things you're not in control of. You're not in control of peaceful sleep. You think you are. And you also don't know what happens while you're in deep REM sleep. And then you wake up. It's not the alarm that wakes you up. So it's the two most precious things, which is a peaceful sleep and waking up, that I am most grateful for because then it means another day to know better, to be better, to do better. So that's what I'm grateful for. Yes, is there COVID? Yeah, are there many, what I will call multiple pandemics happening at the same time, which is endemics? Yes. Um, are we living in difficult times? Yes, but people did live in difficult times in World War One, World War Two, polio, uh, Spanish flu, colonization, slavery. There's nothing new about difficult times. What sustains human beings, which I see, even with myself, is just hope and faith. So you have to be skeptical, but not cynical. Because hope is the sort of a moral imperative to continue living. Whereas once you lose hope and faith, in the midst of looting, in the midst of riots, in the midst of COVID, 
I've lost a lot of family members in, during this COVID. In the midst of losing people, you still don't lose hope and faith because mm -hmm. that will keep you going. So how am I? I'm still grateful. My family, still grateful. Oh, man, that's, you know, you're making me reflect on my prayer today. For a change, I'm like, actually, let me not ask God for anything because I've got everything that I need. Yes. I must just wake up and say, thank you. Thank you, like, for everything that I have in this present moment. Yes. That was my prayer today. So, yeah, man, like, if anything, we must just be thankful and, and continue having hope. Yeah, we have the time that we live in. There's something amazing about gratitude because, you know, I was listening to... Um, I think, I, I can't remember, it's a psychologist actually, for, uh, 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 Wang, it's a Chinese psychologist, a positive psychologist, and he talks about the lack of gratitude sometimes stems from the fact that we spend so much time, we've been told, look inward, think too much about yourself, think, yes, it's good to think too much about yourself, but sometimes just be grateful. Mm. And then also, don't just go inward, also, lift others up, do for others, not just for yourself all the time. If you're spending too much time on self, you will find flaws about yourself anyway. They are daily. So you might as well spend some time looking in, but also some time being grateful, sometimes serving and lifting others up. And then in that way, you have a more well-integrated self rather than a well-self-absorbed self because that just leads to misery. That is true, and it's a nice segue, right, um, in doing and uplifting others. And I generally think you spending your time with us, or with me at least in this conversation, everyone that will be listening, is you uplifting others. I, every time I bring a guest there, I'm like, actually, this benefits me, benefits everyone else, because this is your precious time that you are using. So I'd like to thank you first and foremost for that. Um, and I want us to start with an icebreaker. Uh, I normally start it like this, either a phrase or whatever I want to ask. I, want, I don't want you to think long and hard about it. Yep. I just want you to give me the first thing that comes to mind, whether it's a one word, um, and then we'll get into all the marketing and exciting things. You game? Yep, super. Let's do this. Your current read? Um, now I'm reading Adaptive Intelligence by Steinbeck, uh, okay. a psychologist on the road of intelligence and that IQ is not enough. There are many forms of intelligence. So I like it, um, that's what I'm reading now. It's, it's called Adaptive Intelligence. Your hero, role model, someone you look up to, or people that you look up to? I have, at the back on my screen, those are my heroes. So my mother, Steve Biko, Robert Sobukwe, Franz Fanon, the psychiatrist and psychologist, and Thomas Ankara. So those are my, my go-to mountain and so those are my people I, I i even commissioned like artist loiso to paint these portraits for me so that whenever i get stuck i have quiet conversations with those role models and because they've walked the talk and i can always ask like some people say what would jesus do i i more prefer what would my mother do mm. okay interesting i love that your favorite brand or a brand that you loved as a child um, favorite brand, wow, I would say it's Nike, that will be the brand like that I kind of just always felt like, and then when I was young, it was Black Cat. Ah, yes. Yeah, and I think it was because the ads were always about an underdog and a bully. Yeah. And, and the underdog uh, having a one-up on the bully or standing up for themselves or standing up for someone else. And so that appealed to me, that idea that you, you could, even though I know that it's an overclaim that peanut butter can do that. In <laughs> a young mind, the concept of a, a transformation of a... Uh, someone who looks like a coward or a nerd, it actually glorified a nerd earlier on before nerds were cool. And, yeah. and so I really liked it because I, I saw myself as an underdog growing up. So that appealed to me. Nike always appealed to me because I just, they always honored the athlete. Yes. 
Yeah, and I like that idea of honoring greatness, honoring, and also when I studied what Nike stands for, goddess of victory. So they just always like honored the athlete. And, and also you are what you do, just do it. You are not what you say, you are what you do. So those two, I would say, are my, they will always be my favorite brands. I like that, Black Cat. Yeah, that's, that's the last brand someone would actually say. You'd expect the Nike, the, the, the Apples and all of that. So I like Black Cat. Uh, your dream for the African continent? Mine is, comes from Steve Biko when he says that at some, in the, I write what I like, and also it comes from Pixley Kaseme, when Steve Biko says that um, hopefully Africa will give the world a more humane face. And, 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 and Pixley Gassema talks about the African Renaissance and, and that hopefully there will be an African Renaissance. And, and he says the Africa regeneration and the regeneration of Africa. So my hope is that Africa does not only give the world um, economic prosperity, but it also gives the world a more humane economic prosperity, a more soulful capitalism. A, a capitalism that is wrapped in Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. And so I hope we can give Ubuntu capitalism rather than capitalism that is highly individualistic and um, mostly sometimes immoral and unethical and filled with pathological pursuit of power and profit. I just hope that while Africa chases economic prosperity for all, reducing inequality, poverty for all, gender equality, we also give the world a more humane face. We basically bring God back and make God more sexy in money. Mm. I always used to hope that in Africa we will, when you look at the money that has Mandela's face, and I always imagine it is that one day, imagine if money were to have God's face in it, what would it look like? Mm. What would it be used for? And how would we respect it? If every day you woke up and the money that's in your wallet has God's face, hmm. what would you do differently? Would you honor it differently? Would you use it differently? Would we be less greedy? All of that. So I just wish Africa can give that to the world more than just innovation, quantum computing, nanotechnology, AI. I just wish that we could give the world an even more humane face because I think that's what the world needs even more. Okay, last one, and then we, we dive deeper. So how do you want to be remembered um, in your career and just as a person, as Mzam? The truth is, I don't want to be remembered. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, like, because I'll be dead anyway. So I just, <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like, I'll take that as an answer then. <laughs> I feel like the need to be remembered is the need to be attached to an ego. All right, man. Thank you for indulging me. So now let's get to the work that you do. And I look at your profile and your CV. You've kind of gone through multiple career paths, right? Yeah. Um, and I think multiple industries as well, which I think gives you that wealth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Have you always been this deliberate in that I started FMCG, I go to telco, I go to apparel and sport, then I go to technology. Or it just kind of happened and you just stumbled on, ah, oh, there's an opportunity, let me take it. I became more deliberate and intentional around about age 25, 26, and I'm 47 now. So that will be 22 years ago. And the only reason I started being deliberate and intentional is because I went to ask Doug Bailey, blessed his soul, like he was then CEO of Unilever South Africa. And I wanted to make a decision as to whether to go to India or to take a, a, a new role, but a promotion. And I was not sure because then India, uh, secondment had no promotion, mm. no title. The, the, if I stayed in South Africa, I was gonna get promoted. And so I went to him to ask which one to take. And he gave me the greatest gift. He didn't tell me what to do. He just said to me, do you have a life plan? Do you have a brain key? And do you have a money plan? And then I said, what does any of those three things have to do with this decision? And then he said to me, when you're broke, you make poor decisions. So you need to fix your money. And at that point I was broke anyway. And so I was thinking, 
if I get that new promotion, they'll get a higher salary, then I can pay off my credit cards overdrive. Mm. And so he says, broke people make poor decisions and they are risk averse. And so you need fuck off money and you need to be financially free. So that was the first lesson to being intentional. The second one, he says, do you have a life plan that includes what you want to do with your career? How do you want to craft your career? And while are you at Unilever, how does Unilever help you? Because Unilever knows what it wants from you. Mm. So you don't need to worry about that. And if you're no longer giving Unilever what it wants, Unilever will fire you anyway or retrench you. So mm. you don't have to worry about Unilever. Unilever knows what Unilever wants from you. Do you know what you want while you are at Unilever? Do you know what, how Unilever can help you? And it's a win-win. I was like, no. And he says, then you need to start thinking hard. And then the third thing was, do you have a brain key, your own personal brain key? You write brain keys for Omo, for Dove, for all this. Do you have one for yourself? And then I said, no. And he says, you do annual plans for other brands, three-year plan, five-year plan, yes. but you don't have a brain plan for yourself. So that really hit me. So that's when I started having a, a, a more deliberate, intentional plan. So then he said to me, Listen, you must make decisions on growth first, not on salary. Money will come. Money will always follow. But first make decisions on growth. Are you growing? Then I decided, actually, I'm going to go to India because I've never been to India. And I also wanted to grow and I wanted to expand my horizon. And I went and I don't miss that promotion, by the way, I didn't take. And then he asked me also to think deliberately deliberately and intentionally and proactively about, do I want to be a generalist or do I want to be a specialist? And then he told me about breadth and depth. And he told me that in life as a career, your career must have breadth and it must also have depth, depending on whether you want to be a specialist or you want to be a generalist. For example, he asked me, do you want to be a CEO of a company? Then you're a generalist. Mm. So if you're a generalist, you need more breath. You don't need a lot of depth because you need to be able to ask the right questions, but you're not the expert yes. or specialist. But if you want to be a specialist, you are an expert. So you need depth. And he says to me, you need to decide, even in marketing, marketing has breath and depth. Marketing has generalist and specialist. And you need to decide which are you? Are you a specialist, a generalist, or are you a hybrid of both? Mm. So then he helped me intentionally because I started my career as a specialist. And I was an analyst, a statistician, and I was doing market research, insights, analytics, statistical analysis. So I was in research and I was already going to become head of consumer insights for Africa. And then he says to me, but if you stay in this path, you are a specialist. And yes, you will be a respected specialist, but that's all you will be, a specialist. Do you want to be that? Then I was like, no, I want to be both a generalist. Then I had to cover part on, I moved from being a specialist to a generalist, then brand manager, uh, marketing manager, marketing director, VP, food business. And then he said to me, why do you Unilever think about where else do you want to go to? Then I said to him, I want to consult, run my own consultancy, teach. And then he says, okay, why do you do Unilever? What can Unilever do for you to help you become a better teacher, to help you become a better consultant? And then there was an opportunity to do UCT Unilever Institute. When it just started, he whispered in my ear to say, hey, they are a consultancy. You want to be a teacher and a researcher, academic. Why don't you lead? that thing, because then it will help you become a better researcher. And I did that. And UCT Unilever Institute started helping me do public presentations, which I was not doing at that time. And then I started doing research for public and practitioners, because then I was more intentional and proactive about who I wanted to be. So when I was leaving Unilever, I knew two years before I left Unilever that I want to go teach and consult. So I saved money for a year so that I have enough money that if it doesn't work out, at least for a year, I'll be okay. And I was confident that I'll find another job. I mean, at that point, Unilever was the university of mm -hmm. Malcolm.
And then I wrote it down and everything for me, I used, I write a life plan. Even now I still have a plan. I have a 2025 plan now. I wrote it down and I said, my next thing is teaching and consulting. And I want to teach at UCT. And next thing, Professor Simpson, whom I was working with at the UCT Unilever Institute, then recommended me for a lecturing post at UCT, which achieved the thing I wanted to do to teach. And also my mentor, which is Dalbedi, told me, it's not who you know only that matters, it's who knows you mm. that matters. So Professor Simpson knew me. Yes. And Professor Simpson had power and influence at, as the dean or deputy dean at management school at UCT. And he recommended me, blessed his soul, for opening a door for me. He was my ally. Yes. And then I teach at UCT. I run my own consultancy. I wrote down, when we won the World Cup 2010, I also wrote down in my plan that I want to do something with the World Cup. Either I do it as my consultancy business or I find a gig in either government. I tried and I couldn't find something worthy with my consultancy. I applied for a government job in the office of the president, then Tabumbeg. They didn't take me. They said I was rebellious and <laughs> I didn't have my hair combed. So I didn't get the job. But then I was told that Nike is hiring and they're looking for a chief brand officer. In 2006 or seven, I applied through the headhunter. The headhunter introduced my CV to Nike and amazingly, I got the job, but I had written it down. And I even told Nike, I will join you if you give me World Cup. All I want is World Cup 2010. If you don't give me World Cup, then I, I don't join. And then they gave me World Cup. <laughs> now I was with Nike for five years, amazing time, best probably brand and company I worked at. And then I wrote down, I need to leave Nike because I can see that the future is going mobile. So I wrote down, I know very little about mobile because while I was at Nike, we partnered with South Sea, doing stuff that's never been done before, embedding Nike content on SIM card, on stuff that's never been done before. That was early stuff when content was new and Nike had lots of content. South Sea needed reasons to attract users, usage, more usage. And we gave them our content, we partnered, we launched these SIM cards with Nike football content, all of that. So that introduced me to technology, mobile phone, SIM card, telco. Then I thought I know very little about this space. So I wrote down, I wanna join a telco and I wrote down MTN, AT&T and Vodacom. Those were my companies. And by as luck will have it, MTN and Vodacom called. And I joined Vodacom and I was at Vodacom and Vodafone. I was in London, UK, global. But you see that for me, and then fifth year at Vodacom, I wrote down, now I need to join an OTT to yes. complete this because I now know about network, mobility, airtime. But now I need to join the reasons for using the phone, which yes. is a, a Google or Facebook, Amazon, Byte which is now TikTok or WeChat, all of those. Then I thought, I wrote those down and the Google job happened. And the Google job, actually, I was giving a reference for someone, for Anwar Yapi, who's a really great friend of mine. I've known him since Varsity. And yeah. he wanted to work for, for Google and he asked me to be his referee. And while doing that, the lady on the call, the Google lady said, hey, would you like us to interview you for a job? And then I said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. And because I had already written it down. So for me, I would say that I've always believed that um, God and the universe conspires much more where better with you when you are clear what you want. Mm. You need to tell God what you want. It's, it's kind of like thing that for me, I believe in, in that because there's a thing in the scripture that says, God has not given you a spirit of fear and timidity, but God has given you a spirit of power, love and sound mind. And most people remember the love part, but they don't remember the sound mind. So that sound mind for me is the one that I like the most because then it means God has given us the power to think 
Mm. And you have critical reasoning, analytical skills, many forms of intelligence. So then God has given us the free will to at least put thoughts on paper. Whether you are right or wrong about your plan, it doesn't matter. What matters is at least you thought about it, you wrote it down and you chased it. And then I just always pray to God that if it is wrong, then don't make it happen. So that's how my career has definitely, since I was age 27, been a lot more deliberate, intentional, and proactive. But through having great coaches, mentors in Doug Bailey, Case Krydov, who I, who's now in, I think in the US or in Netherlands, those people really, really helped me out. Like they really gave me ideas and thoughts. I wouldn't have been a lot more clear without them. Yeah, I love that. And it's, it's, it's so important to be that much more deliberate. Most probably thinking through to your point mm. and then actually actioning, putting in the work. Yes. But at the end of the day, no one's just going to drop an opportunity for you. You have to put in the work and make sure that you are in the space that will allow for you to get what you want. I mean, yeah, I, like what you're saying, I always say to people, you know, I don't go to church, but I love God enough that I know that in the scripture it says, even in the Quran or in the Torah, that what is faith without action, it is empty. And that I also know that an old man once told me in, 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 in the Eastern Cape that God does not listen to the words that come out of your mouth and tongue because God put them there. It is the blanket of faith and action that you wrap those words with that God truly feels and understands. So at the end of the day, it is not enough to think. You must also do. You have to wrap it in faith, but most importantly, in action. Love that. So I was reading something a couple of days ago um, on Think with Google. Mm. And, I, and I love the platform because it's got so much information. Yeah. Um, and we were, what I was actually going through was Africa's digital economy. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll pick some of the things that I actually picked. And I want you to, to share most probably in your view, in your light, what you're actually currently picking up. Yeah. Um, and it was about Africa's digital economy, and they shared five key trends that will define the next five years. Yeah. Uh, because it's quite clear, we need insights mm -hmm. into the current state of the economy as a result, then we can make informed business decisions. I think it's also important for marketers to understand that, that there's a lot of importance in the stats, the data, the insights for us mm -hmm. to make um, the, the, the decision. So I'll, be, I'll briefly touch on it. The first one was around, Africa is, is experiencing rapid urbanization. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the encouragement here, the action is to position our businesses to be helpful. Yep. And I think it speaks true to it, even so what Google is about. It's about being helpful. Mm. Um, and I think that's beautiful. And even emphasizes this showing uh, the regional GDP growth from 2010 to 2019 to show that in Africa it was sitting at 4%, sort of mm. much higher than other regions sitting at 1.7 on average. And I think that was important. The second one was Africa's demographic boom fuels consumption. So be socially responsible as a business and as a brand. Yeah. What are some of the things that you've also picked up um, around the continent that will help other marketers and brands maybe to, to, to pull levers on in, in defining growth for themselves? So I think you talked about it, the first one being insights. And in that, what it means is that what we require now is we all must understand that data analytics is important, yet the desk is the dangerous place to view the world. So you still need to go out there. You need, still need to be an anthropologist, a sociologist, a, a theologist. You still need to be a social scientist as much as you're a data scientist. You need both. You need to live in the intersection between data science and social science. And you, and you need both, and like linguists. You need these conversion of art and science. And basically now we more probably need more polymaths than people who consider themselves, I'm a statistician, or no, I'm just an, a psychologist. You now need people who are polymaths on, who embrace both science and art, who live in the intersection between art and science. So in the entire continent, what we should be doing is developing skills that embrace both the left brain, right brain, the, the data scientist and the social scientist. And I think even we should be changing our academic degrees or diplomas in, in trying to make sure that they blend both art and science and stop this thing that if you're just a CA, you're just a CA. No wonder then there's Steinhoff. Mm. Because then you're a CA without morals and ethics. And so why then? So we might as well, that's why now 
I feel like even accountants should not be allowed to graduate without having done something in philosophy on morals and ethics, not just king commission on governance. It's not enough. And without really thinking deep about the job that I'm doing, what impact would it have to society? So that's the first part for me is that in the continent at the moment, who we're training and developing to become the next marketeer should really be someone who's really embracing and lives in the intersection between art and science and who genuinely believes in both and embraces both and doesn't have a superiority and inferiority complex over the other. It's just whichever one works at that point in time. That's the insights part we need. Like, And the second part is that you talked about data and the GDP growth. The also thing that we need to understand is that just because it can be counted, it does not always mean it counts. Mm. And that GDP growth doesn't always necessarily correlate with decreasing unemployment, decreasing poverty, decreasing gender-based violence, decreasing. So there are many things that we are not counting mm. that counts. And just because we didn't count them, it does not make them not count. So we should be very careful to lean only on the things that can be measured. As Africans, we also have to really think hard about what would holistic growth look like, other than just using one measurement. Is there a, a sort of a, a concise holistic dashboard that we're using to measure things? Same with marketeers. There's more to measure now, as in you use the word helpfulness. There's more to measure than just awareness, liking, enjoyment, spontaneous recall, distribution. Mm. Those things we still measure, but there's more to human beings than just measuring awareness, liking, top of mind, prompted awareness, consideration, all of those things. What are the other things that we're not measuring that also count? Mm. And are we aware of those things? Do they really have to be, everything has to be moved into a number, a binary number, ones and zero. So that's something in area as well that we should really think about hard because marketing is, is dangerous and amazing, but also dangerous because we mind benders and mind shifters. So if we're not careful, we are nudges and persuaders, but if we used wrongly, we can be manipulators and spin doctors and liars. And so we, we have a discipline that someone once said to me, it's probably the closest thing to Lucif because we make suggestions. We, we don't force you to buy things, but we suggest that yes. this is a great idea. So that means we have a lot of power, but with power also comes responsibility. So I hope that as much as also within the continent, we don't adopt everything that we see from the West without toning it down with a level of responsibility, with a level of values, a more value-centric marketing, more respectful of people, more respectful of the end user, and we serve people honorably at a profit. So I think for me, those would be, and then the last one, which is an evergreen, is just great product and great solutions. Those don't change. Whether you're in a developer economy, tech startup, whether you're selling a tangible product or an intangible product, you still need a great product, whether it's tangible and intangible. So, and we as Africans need to stop selling things on the color of our skin. Yes. No one buys your product because you're black. <laughs> or you're a woman or LGBTQ, or you have a person with disability. They buy it because it's a great product. And we need to move away from that. No one really buys Apple product because it's Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. They buy the product because it works. It's beautiful. It's a like, great design. Nike. No one, most people don't even know who Nike founder is. Then the last bit which Africans have that we don't struggle with, but we don't use it well, is storytelling. We grew up in storytelling. Human beings love stories. Marketing is actually just another way equivalent of storytelling. We're just telling stories. We're just telling them with the intention to sell honorably or serve honorably at a profit. We do have a revenue profit market share intention. So it's no secret that we have a revenue market share profit intention.
but it's still a story nonetheless. And the consumers know it. The consumers are not stupid, as Ogilvy once said. The consumer is your mother. They're not stupid. They, they know. But we forget to tell stories. So that's another area I would say that we miss out on, even though we grew up being great storytellers. We grew up under stories, but we don't tell stories well. Mm, love it. So in your, in your role, and, and I know you've been, a, you've been an executive in marketing for a very long time. Uh, have you have you seen that the role of a CMO has changed lately, or maybe actually still the same? Nothing has changed, and maybe we need to do things or certain things better. Because twenty six percent, and I was reading again on Think with Google, that twenty six percent of CMOs regularly attend company board meetings. Mm. So the the seat for a CMO has been taken out, and we technically don't need it apparently. But mm. what has happened? I don't. I don't necessarily think it is the CMO role that is becoming irrelevant. Mm. I think it's some certain individuals who get given the title are irrelevant and they do not show value that and they make marketing look more like it's an event thing like yes. golf, do a golf session put a banner up that's what they create the impression to the hard, the so-called hardcore sciences like engineers chartered accountants, just because they've got spreadsheets and balance sheet and cash flow statement and, and they can measure things and they can do ratios, return on capital employed, PE ratio, it makes them look more clever. And if you're an engineer, you can do the measurements. Where marketing has been lacking is finding that balance between art and science. Where marketing, I, I still get invited in board meetings because I'm a statistician by training. So when you, when I talk to a chartered accountant, there's nothing new that they're going to tell. Actually, accounting hasn't changed much for many decades. There's nothing particularly creative about accounting and auditing. But I can tell you a lot of creative things that have been happening in the marketing space. And it's just that what marketeers have missed out is finding that balance between having clear measurements, OKRs, KPIs that are even an engineer or an accountant can relate to while also selling art and selling gut feelings. There's a role in the boardroom for gut, a gut brain, feelings, intuition, because a lot of the decisions, we're not making them, even the, the chartered accountant who thinks is rational or the engineer who thinks they are rational, they are actually irrational because when they leave home and they pissed off with their partner, they bring that emotion into the boardroom. They bring that emotion into decision-making. No one is perfectly rational. But so what the marketeer, in this case, I would feel sometimes betrays the profession, is not finding that balance between data and art, science and art. And so the marketeers that are relevant are the ones who are able to go to the boardroom and also have a good, solid understanding of the business. You know how we make money here. You know how to grow revenue. You know how to reduce, increase gross margin. You know how to do EBITDA growth. You know how to do cost reductions, but you also know how to increase users usage. You also know that in the IFRS guidelines and the balance sheet, the intangible asset has value. And your job is to grow the intangible asset. And you also know that when businesses are sold, over 50% plus of the value that is in being sold is intangible. Mm -hmm. And that's the role of a marketeer. It's not an accountant that created that intangible value. But all of a sudden, we make ourselves have an inferiority complex in board meetings. It's the same, by the way, with economics. Economists. When economists started, they were inferior to physics or scientists because at some point, economics was a social science with no numbers. And then the economists decided to add maths, stats, make economics more tangible, sexy, but in the process, what economics missed and lost was humanity. It became a numbers thing just to become clever. What marketing should not miss while chasing measurements, data analytics, is don't lose the abstract inductive logic, the, the, the magic, because in marketing there's magic and we shouldn't be uh, ashamed and apologetic of the magic or apologetic of the irrational. It's there. 
I mean, even I always say to board members, how many people have you dated and you broke up with and you think, shit, that was a bad decision? That just shows you are irrational. And some of them, I ask them, how many of you are divorced? And seven out of 10 are divorced. Yeah. And I said to them, if you are so rational as you say you are, how come you divorced twice? <laughs> so it's, it's just, that's the thing for me is that I feel like as marketeers, like with me, I feel like marketeers who embrace both have presence in the board. Like for example, I just got into a, another non-executive board room. When I asked them why, they're like, dude, we need someone to help us grow the brand grow the users. We now know that without a great quality brand, we're not going to grow. We also want you to help us grow users. We want you to help us grow usage. We want you to help us grow revenue. We also want to help us figure out how to get return on marketing investment. Yes. And we can calculate those things. Yes. And at the moment, the CEO is saying to me, I don't know how to do that. I'm a chartered accountant. I need you to partner with me to help me get that thing done. So marketing has a role. It's just that I just feel like there are certain individuals who do the profession a disservice. And so then it creates the impression that, and also there are certain CEOs and CFOs who have a superiority intelligence complex, which is flawed and unsustainable in the long run. And they don't value other professions except the professions that can count and match. Mm. which is wrong. I mean, same, by the way, HR has the same challenge. If you go and ask people in HR, how many of them get invited into board meetings? That's true. If you see, but HR has a huge role because at the end of the day, what is the company about? People. Mm. People first. It's people first. And there's no productivity without people. So HR is at the center of that. And there's something called people analytics now. Even HR can analyze. Even HR can have data analytics, but why not losing organizational psychology, psychology of a human being that we want to be safe? When, so all of us have disciplines where we have to converge science and art and not be apologetic at the boardroom. And also, I mean, for example, this time around to the CEO, I said to him, oh, by the way, I still want you to know, though, there are certain things that cannot be counted, but I do know that they count. And just because they can't be measured, it doesn't mean they don't count. So I will ask you to have faith and just believe in the magic. And then he laughed at me and said, hey, it's hard. But I was like, yeah, but I can also tell you that the balance sheet is only relevant in the day it is published. The following day, it's useless. So, so can you rely on something that is only relevant within an hour of being published? And then after that, it changes. And so why would you so be loyal to a balance sheet, but you're not loyal to ideas mm. that are magic? But it's just, I, I feel like it's us also in the industry that we're not doing our own homework. We don't fall in love with business models, the balance sheet, the cash flow, the, the ratios. We, we're just not talking the language that the chartered accountant or the engineers or the lawyers or the bankers are talking before we talk marketing. And if someone was listening carefully to what you were saying, I asked you the question, you told us what the problem is, and you've also given the solution. Yes. I won't even ask what the solution is, but you, because you've been very clear on what we actually need to do. Looking at the time, as we close off, I've got two things that I need to ask you. Mm -hmm. The first one is around inclusion, diversity, and I definitely want to close off then asking about African make it. Um, and if I, if I pick up a common thread, uh, listening to the CMO, of Google head office as well. I think her name is Lorraine. Lorraine, yes. The, the, what I see is so many similarities from just the CMOs in the company focusing on inclusion and diversity. It's deep yeah. in you guys in your current role. Mm. Um, maybe talk to me about what you guys are currently doing. Um, and you can even speak to yourself personally because I also know you've got daughters, right? Yeah. Um, and in the scope of inclusion diversity, it doesn't only count gender. Hmm. Um, it comes so many other aspects of it. Um, hmm. Maybe let's touch on that in what you're doing in your current role, maybe to walk the talk. Mm -hmm. um, because I know people will crucify me and say, why are you bringing a man in August to talk about when it's Women's Month? But we should be having this conversation all the time. It should yeah. only just happen mm -hmm. in August. So from someone who's in a position of power and influence, mm -hmm. um, I'd love to hear from you. Super. So at Google, what I liked is that there was a thing about first admit that you are not where you want to be, but also have an ideal. 
So we started with an ideal, and then we publicly, publicly publish our flaws, as in we've got a diversity report that says we are nowhere near where we want to be. The second thing we did was publish our advertising data analytics on how do we represent black people? How do we, do we even represent older people in our advertising? How do we show black people in advertising? How do we show women in advertising? We published that just to show that and, and hang our dirty linen in public to, us, to shame ourselves into action. Not just shame ourselves into inaction, but to shame ourselves into action. So once we did that, the next thing we did was guidelines. We put guidelines in place on what does inclusive advertising or creative or content looks like? What does diverse, equitable, inclusive content look like? And we put guidelines, which I use with my team, saying when I go to agency partners, I demand diversity, equity, and inclusion from agency partners. And I have a company that supports me. So when I go and demand it from agencies, I know I'm backed by the company that supports it, that the agencies also need to change. I'm a client, they're the agencies. For us to deliver great, diverse work, we both need to change. And then that's the part. Then we've got guidelines. Like for example, when people bring me a script, my job is to use marketing, which is, has its power, which is mind bending, mind shifting, make people think differently, change behavior. So therefore my job is to unstereotype people. So if I see an ad where people are, black people are just dancing, I mean, is that all black people can do, just dance and sing? There's more to black people than dancing and singing. So I kill that script. If I see a woman in a kitchen pregnant, holding a baby, is that all women can do on this ad? I mean, there's more women that they can do than just being pregnant and hold, and also why is the measurement of success for a woman is pregnancy and holding a baby on. And there are other measurements of success for women as well. Same thing, when I see a script with a person or LGBTQ, there tends to be a stereotype about what a gay person looks like. Mm. And there's a narrow stereotype of what they do, how they behave, and that I kill too, because there must be, there are many ways to be gay, or there are many ways to be queer other than just the, the stereotypical lazy version. So those things I kill. So those are the things that constantly my team know that if they were to ever bring me something or if they want to bring me a new agency, they will go on an RFP. They know what I'm going to ask them. How diverse is that agency? What diverse and inclusive work have they done? I want examples. They must show me. And if I can't see them, then we don't use that agency. So you see, those are the things that, then the people I hire, how diverse and more deliberate, proactive on who we hire and the representation in who we hire. How important, same like if I'm in East Africa and West Africa, I have to find the balance between hiring West Africans and East Africans who grew up in the UK, US, Canada, and now they went to Ivy Leagues versus hiring locals who understand the market, who speak the language, who might have gone to the University of Nairobi or Kenyatta, but I should give them also an opportunity just as much as one went to Cambridge or London School of Business, whatever the... So that's also diversity in itself, is that also in Kenya, I should understand that there's not only one tribe in Kenya. So I can't just be hiring from one tribe, one religion. I have to make sure my team is diverse. Same in Nigeria. I can't only be hiring Yoruba people without Hausa, without Igbo, without people from the North and South, East. So it's my job to make sure that even that team is diverse because it must reflect the demography of Nigeria. Mm. That's how we communicate and tell stories better in Nigeria. Same in Kenya, same in Ghana, Egypt, or South Africa. So that's the thing I'm doing. And also I have daughters. So it's important that I want when my daughters see the stories we tell, they can see who they can become yes. or who they want to be. And, I, and these kids now are in the woke and cancel culture generation. And they will give me feedback that, oh, that's not cool. What yes. you see there. And also you get instant feedback. And that's as well. So that's the key thing. So for me, that will be the reason 
diversity, equity, and inclusion is important is not always because it is directly linked to profit, because there's not enough scientific research really or repl replicable research that proves that diversity causes an increase in profit. It's not always true. Mm -hmm. But what we know though is that there's a lot of great upsides in having a diverse team because you produce, especially in marketing, you produce even better stories, even more creativity. And that's what we're selling as an industry, creativity, solutions through creativity. And the creativity is way better when we're diverse. And it's way better when it's inclusive. And we know that it, it's, I mean, I just did my PhD on language. And my PhD study was to show that if I take the same ad that is in English and I put it in Zulu and Corsa, yes, and I measure it, would it score the same? And so far, this has been done now three times, replicated three times. Yes. The scores significantly are better for mother tongue than for English in South Africa. Significantly on short-term sales, on enjoyment, ease of understanding, liking, all of those scores, they way better, 10x and 5x better than if, so there is a role on in being inclusive because we now know that if you speak to someone in their mother tongue, you speak to their heart. If you speak to them in their second language, you speak to their head. And I know this in South Africa, that Africans, for example, there's less Africans ads, which doesn't make sense. Mm. I mean, there's less than 8% of South Africans whom English is first language at home. 92%, it's either Zulu, Kosa, Sutu, Africans. So why are we so lazy? But we wanna grow sales. We want to grow brand equity, awareness, but we're lazy. I mean, when, we, when I was growing up, Spider-Man was in Sisutu and Zulu. And mm -hmm. I never even thought Spider-Man spoke English. I thought Spider-Man spoke Sutu and Zulu. And, and, but it was all dubbed. Yes. And it didn't cross my mind that there was something wrong with the dubbing. But if all of a sudden we lose those things because we think they're not cool anymore. So that, that would be the reason really for me that I champion diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's just you get better results. And you also get just more like a cool team. Yes. And more great vibes all just all around. Like so I just rather I will always be pro it than against it. I love it, man. I love it. Last question, we wrap up. Yeah. Uh, African men care. Mm -hmm. I've visited the website um, and I think it's such a beautiful thing. Please share what it is, when it was founded, what are you trying to do? And how do people actually get involved? Um, African Men Care, we've started it 16 or 17 years ago. And really it comes from, I can summarize it using Noam Chomsky's line where he's, he was at UCT and he says to be young, gifted and free and black without opportunity is a devil's gift. Mm -hmm. and, and to deny that gift and that opportunity is criminal and evil. And I am a product of opportunity. I grew up in shacks. I grew up in the backyard dweller. My mother was a domestic worker from age 14. My father abandoned me when I was less than a year old. So I grew up with the problems that most other black kids have. Absent fathers, poor mother, poor places, shack dweller, RTP house. And so we started the organization because I didn't want to give money to a pastor or a church or so we started an organization and also we focus on the thing that we're passionate about which is education because that has been the ticket out of poverty for me and that is the ticket i know best some people focus on entrepreneurship because that's the ticket they know best mm -hmm. and all of us we should focus on all these things all at once and hopefully one day we'll get to the heaven on earth so there's none that is better than the other so I always say to people, I disagree when they diss education and say, who needs education? And I say to them, oh, by the way, look at all the founders in Silicon Valley. All of them were either doing a PhD and they dropped out PhD, not dropped out high school. And also most of them, Warren Buffett at age seven or eight or nine was already trading in stock. So he had an early start. He read all the books on financing investing in high school. So his foundation was strong. So this thing of us dissing education and saying clever blacks is actually 
stupid and not wise yes for all of us because education is one of i'm not saying it's the only but it is one of the tickets out of poverty for many so that's what we focus on and we now currently have over 50 kids we have a few of those kids who we took from primary all the way to varsity some now are engineers a nurse teachers in science and we don't decide what career they should be so we don't put a limit on steam or stem we just support because i know that the world might be changed by a nurse because someone might start as a nurse and end up as something else so this obsession on i'm not obsessed with the what you qualify as because that just trains you on the critical reasoning practical intelligence creative intelligence analytical intelligence it just trains you what you end up becoming that's different i mean you can be a ca now but or a marketeer now and end up doing nanotechnology because you can think mm -hmm. and so all of that so that's what we're doing now and our role really is to help as many kids we don't have a number of helping one million two million three million i don't believe in that i just believe in the concept that we want to be john the baptist to jesus we want to be Shamza to Rumi. We want to be the guy that helps Moses, Jethro, mm -hmm. just to, to cross the, the desert for 40 years. And we just want to be that guy that, like, you know, uh, Tupac says, I might not change the world, but I might, I'm going to spark the brain that will change the world. Yes. So the idea is we, we want to be the stage, the enabler, but we don't want to be the hero of the story. We just want to be the stage, the enabler. We just want to, no one remembers John the Baptist, but without John the Baptist, the story of Jesus is incomplete. Correct. And we just want to be that guy who's invisible. No one knows about, we don't want to be the hero, but we want to, hopefully one day we can create a Jesus that will save as many of us and that will make the world a better place uh, through opportunity. And our job really is to democratize opportunity and increase transcendence while re while reducing feelings of not being safe and while increasing self-esteem as well so if we can help democratize opportunity increase transcendency we would have seriously achieved even if we do it with 50 kids only and i die tomorrow that would be more than enough and how people get involved you can help us by donating more so that we can have more kids that we fund or we can take a gifted child from the private, from the township or rural school they're in into a great private school. And then your money is not about quantity. It's about how we give quality to a gifted child. And in that way, you would have helped one child. Maybe that will be the child, maybe not, because we also have a failure rate of around about 20%, which is understandable because we're dealing with human beings. Yes. human beings you give them opportunities they throw them away mm. Some human beings they use them and that's just human beings so i'm conscious that there will be failures and i'm just managing 20 30 percent i should be happy with that 30 percent failure rate because i'm dealing with not robots but human beings you get involved by donating um or you get involved by asking us to find you a kid you, we can find you a kid we can make sure we get the kid and your job is to fund that child. If you don't want to manage the everyday hassles, we've got social workers, therapists that we've partnered with. They will deal with the everyday dealings with parents, um, issues, psychosocial issues of a child, and nutrition, transport, safety, all of those. We will deal with those things. You, we just need your money. Or you can give us your time and your talent. If we've got kids who want a role model to speak with, you can just make time for the kids to see someone who looks like them, yes. who grew up in the same environments like them, to see that it's possible, that they too can become something. So that's really what we're trying to do. And hopefully we can create a heaven on earth for as many kids as possible. It's the hope, man, it's the hope. You did say earlier on, it's the hope. Mm. Thank you so much, my good sir. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your knowledge. Thank you for the conversation. I, I, I truly really appreciate it and I hope everyone that's listening will definitely appreciate and get the same value that I did. I always learn from these conversations. So 
I'm really grateful for you inviting me and I like your intentions and your intentions are noble and may they continue and may you prosper in this and also may you just continue helping others grow.